0: Okay, so you got your cardio on. Got my cardio. Okay, so I'm going to start. Uh, I start with an introduction, and then, we, yes. g- then we go to music, then I introduce you, and then we just get on with it. All right. Okay, so here we go, darling. All right. This is uh, Spreaky Speakery Episode 1 with Julia Hobbsbourne, OBE. Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and a very warm welcome to you wherever you may be in the world. Welcome to Season 1 of Speakery Notes, a series of interviews with people who are marvellous at live and virtual events. Over the course of the next 10 weeks or so, I'll be talking to keynote speakers, event organisers, streamers, YouTubers, composers, musicians, actors and event photographers about their speakery experiences. It's time to shine some light on the dark art of speakery. This is Episode 1 of and it's an absolute banger.
1: Everybody clear throat, With Marcus John Henry Brown, lovely.
0: So my first guest was quite literally the very first name that I put on the top of a very, very long list of special guests that I want to have on speakery notes. She's an author, an entrepreneur social health activist, event organiser, and speaker. Her Names Not Numbers conference in 2018 was quite literally the most remarkable event I've ever been invited to. Her style of speaking can be summed up with one word, poise. And being around her is like taking a long swim in a warm sea of grace, generosity. And wicked intelligence. I'm not sure who smuggled me into her orbit. I'm just incredibly grateful that they did. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Julia Hobbsbourne. Hello, Julia.
1: Hello. Oh my goodness! Can I patch you in every time one of my teenage children tells me how pathetic I am?
0: Yeah, and imagine I just that. Have you
1: do that introduction. Oh, Hello. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Hello. I could do that when you call them down for supper.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean come come for a come and have your your fish and chips and a warm bath in a sea of grace, generosity, and wicked intelligence. How the devil are you, Julia?
1: I'm pretty good, all things considered. I mean, here we are hanging out on Zoom as if it's like completely normal. Um
0: Totally normal.
1: I haven't hugged anybody other than my own flesh and blood or and, well, my husband for a year and whilst they're lovely to hug you know that I miss them one more. I miss the face to face I do miss live connection um but I'm fine because the sort of stuff I do has uh pivoted I think they say pretty well I think that's you what the, I think try. that's what
0: the hustlepreneurs say isn't it yeah they and it's it kind all of true
1: place. I mean I think because by the, I had a book that came out on the third of April last year, so terrible timing. And I'd been more or less on the speaker circuit. Um, I know we'll probably talk about the events that I organised, but uh, personally, as a speaker, I'd been on the speaker circuit almost non-stop since twenty seventeen with another book um, when the when the pandemic hit. And so I'm so glad I was that practised. Because I've done hundreds and hundreds of talks and meets and, you know, notes and all that stuff. So it meant that I was able to get in the zone of speaking to a tiny pinprick of a hole in the top of my computer quite a lot faster than if I hadn't been practised at at speaking at all.
0: Yeah. Or can you turn the sound down on your laptop a little? Because I'm I'm picking it it up.
1: Yes. Well, I think I can. I mean,
0: so I can edit that bit out <laughs> or I leave it in.
1: Is that better? That's Am much I booming. Like, yeah, okay. I was Sorry. booming.
0: I was booming at you r- rather rudely. And then
1: I boomed back, you see, mimicry. Do you want to do that again? Do you no, want No, that, that was fine. No, okay.
0: That was absolutely fine. Um, it's, I think that's a perfect segue into what this podcast is actually about. So this is a brand new podcast, Julia. As I've just told you, this is episode one, first guest, brand new podcast, smells like a brand new car in here. <laughs> so, let me t- so let me tell you uh, myself as well, just to remind myself and I guess what is going to happen. So the uh, Speakery Notes is just a series of interviews where we get the insights into stuff like that, your last three years, your speaking journey your the themes the topics the kinds of events that you talked at what you talked about and the kind of events that you created now because i'm a german now i've structured everything carefully so uh, we'll be uh, doing sections so we'll have the speakery approach section where you can talk about how you prepare for talks and things then we'll have the virtual you section where we talk about that pivot uh We're going to end with three tips from you as well in the final three. But I think it would be marvellous if we could start with something which I'm calling the speakery shtick.
1: Speaker shtick!
0: (laughs) So what is your shtick? What? What things do you talk about and why do people book oh, oh yeah. What things do you talk about and why do people book you to come and talk at their events?
1: Ah, oh, well, um there's shtick and shtick, all right? There's the shtick <laughs> that you want to talk about yeah. that is germane to what you're plugging, ideas, books, you know. And then there's the shtick that whoever's booking you wants you to talk about. And actually, the art, I suppose, is finding that sweet spot where everything is aligned, because there's actually nothing worse than doing the shtick that I want to talk about and finding that it's not landing because there's a very precise um, channel of expectation. Do you know what I mean? So though it's quite fraught, being a speaker, I've found. I thought the easy bit was that they wanted you, Hooray, and that they'd spend money for you. Fantastic. But actually, the complexity began almost at that point. So the shtick that I roughly speak to um, is around connectedness in the digital era, the human in the machine age. It's also been around um, simplicity in a complex age. So I do quite a lot of talking about how to keep it simple and that aspect that's almost like strategic well-being. It's not really mindfulness. It's more, why is everything so complicated and how can you hold a simple path through it? Um, so the human in the machine age is one bit and connections and networks. Simplicity in a complex age is another. And then because I've become chair of something called the work shift mission in UK and I've written a paper and then writing my next book called The Nowhere Office, I'm now also talking about the future of work. Um, yeah, so lots of shticks really.
0: Lots of shticks. So if you can, can you remember what your first talk was?
1: Oh my you... god, I can. And it was awful. Why? Um,
0: why? Where was it and why? It why was, was
1: it so bad? in... Sweden for a well-known global brand that emanates from Sweden that I better not name. And I was at the time um, I had a ridiculous title. I was the world's first professor in networking at the time, which was which was laughed at. I now do see the funny side, but at the time I obviously was completely po-faced and didn't. <laughs>
0: Uh, excuse me, I am the world's <laughs> first network. What exactly? President of network, or
1: <laughs> so basically. My, I'm, I think I'm going to say shtick incessantly, but you know what I've always been very interested in is 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 connection and intimacy and how often we don't have that in, say, our working lives. And you know, I just I'm really fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by how. You do and don't get closeness between people. How um, technology can often be the worst enemy, although obviously we love it through the pandemic. But um, so I began to be interested in networks and in the science of networks. And so a business school in London asked me to be honorary visiting professor, not of networks because I'm not a network scientist or a physicist, but of networking. But at the time, the social networks were riding high and nobody really thought that face-to-face networking uh, was a good idea anymore. They thought LinkedIn was going to clean up forever. And the only people who did, as in the kind of people who booked me to speak, were people who wanted to promote the kind of networking that I wasn't in favour of, which was a kind of how to work the room. Stick. so i ended up hoisting myself on my own batard so i got booked to speak by this global firm they flew me and my husband to this amazingly snazzy cool beachside resort i mean it was gorgeous but the actual talk was hideous and i i cried when i came off stage because oh, I, thought, yeah, I thought yeah because i thought I'm no good at this because I want to say what I want to say. I can't really be hired to, to speak a script for somebody else. And actually, in my early years, I would say I had quite a lot of that. And in a way, it helped me practice two things. One is you really do have to practice connecting with an audience and being yourself, and I'm sure you're going to talk to me about that. But the other thing is um, I think you have to learn that you – you know you you've got to have integrity and so what what i did after that particular tour was say i'm never going to speak about working the room again and if nobody ever wants to book me that's fine and you know what it was about 2 years before anybody did after that
0: yeah but i think that's a really important point that i i think everybody who's ever stood on a stage and done a th- done a, used words that they would never really truly believed in they come to that conclusion at some point in their in their career i realized very early on that i'm probably not a very good keynote speaker it's just not the way i tell stories i tell i that's where i moved very very quickly away from big uh, from from keynotary to the stage performances that we're yes. doing um,
1: well, you gave a wonderful stage performance for one of my events. Um, in, oh,
0: the thing in Sarah in, in in House in Berlin. In
1: Berlin. Thank you. Uh, it was, wasn't it, a conference called The Human and Machine. Yeah. And uh, I think you're right. You didn't give a keynote. You gave a, a sort of live experience. I mean, you used your voice. You looked like a keynote. You sounded like a keynote. You presented in a box that would have been ticked on a budget keynote, but you actually gave a sort of performance. It was wonderful, by the way.
0: Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed that event. I really. The thing I loved most about that event was actually watching you work the room. That's a, it's a, that's a really interesting is thing.
1: That, is that right? That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, when was that? Uh,
1: that was twenty nineteen. 2019
0: or no, 18. No, 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 no. Was that after Names, Not Numbers?
1: Yes. Oh, was it? Okay. Yes.
0: Um, yeah, it was really interesting watching you work the room because you have this, um, uh, there's another question, um, y- y- you have this incredible poise. You, you are very, very calm, very... Um. um I don't know. There's something. There's something quite regal about you. I suppose there's an authority. That's the word I'm looking for. There's an authority to uh, to uh, to uh, to what you do. I have never seen. I have never seen German technicians move as fast. <laughs> well when you there's said a whole why isn't about, this, I mean, fin- I why isn't this you- finished yet <laughs> i swear to god i have never seen a german te- lighting technician move as fast as that day it was very very impressive
1: <laughs> well i do hope in your series you're going to cover um the tech side of events and speaking very much because so, of yeah. course you know that is um that is an art and a science all of its own um uh, well, it's very nice of you to say so. I suppose what I think is that people, whether they are watching or participating uh, on the stage or in the audience, should feel equality. They should feel looked at and seen and looked after. That's basically what I believe. And I yeah. suppose when I speak, I have to try and convey... Um, a separateness because otherwise you don't have the status that you're the one on stage taking their time but mm. equally I would never in a million years go on stage without having thought really deeply about who I was talking to and what they wanted to hear even if as we've already discussed there can be a tragic misalignment because, you know, some corporate corporate boarders book you at one remove and they've asked you to do something and they haven't really heard what it is you speak about. And, you know, so sometimes it doesn't land. But mm. I still want whoever I'm talking to to go, oh, that's interesting. And she's really, you know, she really cares about what she's talking about.
0: <laughs> Which leads us perfectly on to, con- uh, to your speaker approach. Yeah. Um... So how do you prepare yourself for a talk? Do you do you go down the route of um, creating a new talk per event or do you have like a set piece which you tweak towards an event? Do you How do you prepare yourself for, for a particular talk?
1: It tends to be a hybrid. I mean, the baseline is I start at the beginning every time. But what happens is there's a bit of a rhythm and flow in that you get I get booked in a flurry and then you realise, you know, oh, hang on a minute, that talk I gave last month, I could in fact, you know, tweak, as you say. Um, but but my baseline position is, is I've got to start from scratch each yeah. time. Um, and I have a box full of scribbles. I have to scribble with notes and postcards and bullet points and writing and reading. And I'm, I'm married to an antiquarian bookseller who is ev- every day shocked at how I deface books because I actually have to underline things in a physical book and I've got my special post-it notes. So I basically think and research and write notes fresh. Then, despite being something of a Luddite, I actually do do a PowerPoint and have managed to learn how to do that myself. Um, uh, you know, very many, you, you know, few words, pictures, that sort of thing.
0: Do you think you could do? T- I I watched your um, your 2017 TEDx at the London yeah. Business School. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. It was a oh, go on. What are you going to say? And I'll tell you what really happened. <laughs>
0: I, I I was watching it and thought, she doesn't need the slides.
1: Yeah. She could, I have to say, I, I think Ted and Ted's contribution to the world has been considerable, but it's also became a straitjacket that all too many people got flung into. And I was very, very, very reluctant to do it because it is so tightly formatted. I mean, ridiculously so. And I mean, I'm a middle aged woman, you know. I had menopausal memory syndrome at the time. I had to write some of what I said on my fingers because I was so nervous that I might forget. And afterwards, I thought, do you know what? I didn't need that stress. I like connecting in a kind of live and direct way, saying what I feel, roughly speaking, having a pattern and a flow, reading the room, smelling the room, as the diplomats call it. And instead, I was confined by these bleeding slides that had to be submitted in advance and the specificity of the rehearsal and the this that and the other and everybody said at the time not only will you have to do it because this is the way we do it but also it's fantastic discipline and afterwards I thought well it's not a discipline I'm ever going to use again thanks.
0: I, I think that's really interesting that I've spoken to a number of people who have done TED things, TED Global things, and I think there's a perception that the people who go on stage, kind of, you know, they go on stage and they wing it, but they 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 look at every single comma and semicolon has to be delivered and worked on together. It's this. It, I've I basically destroyed my TEDx career by doing a TEDx. I, it happens to be, I happen to think it's my worst performance. I've only ever done, done like one TEDx. It was in Offenbach in Germany. Really unhappy with what I did. Um, but because I didn't stick to the rules, they never asked me. I, I, I will never be asked again. And do you know what? I'm all I'm all right with that.
1: Well, me too. I mean, I, I, I it certainly wasn't my best performance i think Um, he
0: did really well i think it's really interesting there are two things that i'd I'd like to point out uh, to the listeners if you do get a chance go and have a look at it because julia's just saying that she was basically very very nervous and if you watch her she's cool authoritative (laughs) charming witty and anything other than nervous do you get nervous when you go on stage
1: Oh, yes. And I think in a way, it's kind of, I'm not taking it seriously if I'm not. I mean, I mind how my ideas land and whether my words connect with people, and they are giving me their time and their attention. And I'm not doing my job properly if I'm not taking them seriously. Oh, my God, I get fantastically nervous, of course. Mm. But it's really interesting what you say about the TED thing, um, because... Like I say, I feel mixed about it. I mean, I know some of their principal people. And funnily enough, the first time I realized that I actually had something to say, because I was very backroom before I was an event organizer for years of convening other people and curating other people, which we might come on to. But TED started to do forays into the UK before they did the TEDx model, you know, before they decided to go digital and they had this thing called TED Global, which was a live event in Oxford. And they had this thing called TED U, which was a sort of basically overflow stroke B list group of people who were not invited onto the main stage, but who they were giving an opportunity to do a kind of off cut live version improv. And the organizer, a rather brilliant guy called Bruno Giussani, said to me, have you got anything you'd like to do? And I have to say, it was incredibly moving to be asked. He had come to My Name's Not Numbers Things and liked and liked the way I'd curated. And I thought about it and I stood up and I gave a talk about shyness in networking and how most people hate networking, most people feel shy, how even though, you know, probably... I would be identified as an extrovert person. I know that feeling. And I read a little bit of, recited a little bit of one of my favourite poems by Roger McGough called First Day at School about mm. being a million, billion, William miles from home waiting for the bell to go, to go where? And I basically said, we all feel horrific faced with a room that we're supposed to be working. And I have to say that really did land with people. And a lot of business leaders came up to me afterwards and went, I am that person. And so it gave me confidence. But of course, I didn't have the spotlight on me because I was doing the backroom B-list bit. And it was in some senses a much more enjoyable experience than doing the heavily produced micromanaged version that's online.
0: Everybody, clear notes. There is a very marked difference between a ted or a tedx and a names not numbers it's quite remarkable actually i'm very i'm very very proud to say i'm on the names not numbers alumni <laughs> it's quite a remarkable thing my first impression of names not numbers is what on earth is going on here <laughs> it's it goes completely against the the entire kind of uh, Shazam and overproduced, con- a convention conference thing that we might see here in Germany, with or in um, Finland, like Slush or something. You know, with light shows and 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 dry ice and dancers and rock bands and rappers and things.
1: Should we tell our? Should we tell your listeners what it what it is or what it was? I mean, it's actually really a, in a mothballed state because. Um, I couldn't really enjoy charging people lots of money in a TED model for it and so really these things work best when they're sponsored and then it's an invitation only or a or a a bit of a feast that hopefully somebody else organizes i mean my my forte it turned out was not selling tickets my forte was creating and curating and persuading people to participate and creating an atmosphere where you know, it was very indivisible between the participants and the players. I I am very proud of that. Um, The central ingredient, really, before you get to the people and the subject matter, is the place and the journey. And that all happened very accidentally. So my, my business, Editorial Intelligence, which is a network which connects and curates and produces now, in fact, podcasts and reports, and, and uh, we did a lot of events. And we did a lot of events that were based at the time – this was around 2005, six, seven, they were based at the time around political party conference fringe meetings – Where there's a really nice febrile energy and everybody's scurrying around at ridiculous hours, like eight in the morning or eight at night, you know, unusual hours, and they're hearing uh, quite a mixed portfolio of people, all the stuff that is now completely mainstream and commonplace, and you know, podcasts and so on. But we 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 were first to do that in in London, outside of that party conference setting, and it worked so well. I had this little fantasy that built. What about if we did that for longer, like for a weekend? What if we, you know, what would that vibe be? Because people seem to, to so love it, the intimacy that they forged with these connections, listening and then talking and milling around afterwards. You know, tiny micro conferences these were. These were sort of 50 people, 60 people. Um And then, you know, a bit of serendipity took over, which is as a child, I'd gone to a remarkable place um, called Port Marion in the uh, Snowdonian Mountains. It's it's hewed from rock and slate on an estuary in the shadow of Snowdonia. And it was built by one of the most incredible architects of his time called Clough Williams Ellis, who hung out with Bertrand Russell. And so it is replete with buildings and Italianate um, statues, and its candy-colored houses and rhododendron bushes coming out of the the you know the rock. I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, it is also uh, was the was the locus for the the cult prisoner series TV series, The Prisoner, with its rallying cry, "I am a name, not a number." So at the back of my mind, I thought, well, if I ever did do that thing, this mad idea to take people away for the weekend to replicate this thing that I've accidentally discovered, like, it would be in Port Marion. And then, really weirdly and bizarrely, a a very innovative PR called Benjamin Webb of deliberate PR who handles um, almost every Nordic Scandi tech brand now, he was doing PR for Port Merion and he contacted me and said, they've given us a list of families that have got a connection to Port Merion and yours is one, you know, would you like to come and write about it? And so I came and I wrote about it and then I reconnected with people who run it. And I said, you know what, could I one day perhaps if I got the money, take over every single room and cottage and close the place to outside visitors and anyway, the result is this really crazy, wonderful journey happened and it worked so well. I mean, if I tell you we had people like Nassim Nicholas Taleb of Black Swan fame walking along the beach, you know, hanging out and arguing about random theory. And we had the singer Annie Lennox and the historian Simon Sharma and corporates uh, from vodafone and i mean that you was know, it was that just was still.
0: the thing that was the thing that blew my mind and I there
1: was no get, green I, room because it was the green room it everybody was in the green, in room, the green yeah. room
0: and the thing was i didn't know um the 2018 one wasn't on the island it was um in oxford which was just as remarkable to be fair um i was i can remember i was sat on the saturday Oh, it was Matt. Our connection came over uh, through Matt Ballantyne. Yes. I was sat next to Matt and I was looking around the room and there was something about the the people in the room that had been bothering me for, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe a day or so. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And um, we were waiting for the fireside chat between Sir Simon Sharma and his oldest friend, his school friend, Sir Martin Sorrell. Yes. Where they would then continue to bicker for, for about 15 minutes about um, why it was only fair that Sir Martin Sorrell got his knighthood before Simon. Um,
1: that took me five years to get Martin Sorrell. Simon Sharma just loves that gig and he was just wonderful yeah. and every year he would do it. Martin Sorrell was a, a much tougher nut to crack. It took me longer to get Martin Sorrell than it took me to get Margaret Atwood, actually. Um, Well, I'm sat in that room
0: and I turned to Matt and because I'd suddenly put my finger on it because the only person in the room that I actually knew was Martin Sorrell. And I said to Matt, hang on a minute. Is everybody in this room famous? Because I'd left England in 1993 and everybody in that room had kind of become famous after that time. Mm. And there was a gentleman in front of me. I think he was something to do with television. Peter, what's his name, Peter? Tall guy with the black hair, with the buffet hair. Lovely man, Peter. He turned around and said, dear boy, don't you know who we are? (laughs) And it it created such a a kind of like a level of interest because they were fascinated that I didn't know who the people were in the room.
1: But funnily enough, that's an unrepresentative comment because, in fact, the the reason why Names Not Numbers worked, so Names Not Numbers was about individuality in a mass age, Um, which I know reads like individuality in a massage, but actually it is individuality in a mass age. And that whole question, which I think remains a very live question, and it was a mix of mini keynotes and breakouts and panels and presentations and performances such as your own, but with people that were, Diverse before diverse had a capital D and everybody was trying to be diverse. Yeah. And very importantly, it was not just about famous important people.
0: No, but and, for me they uh, were. Right. Even but though very, they weren't.
1: Very memorably, I had a I had a Hollywood actress um come, a very old friend of mine, kind of comedic actress. She was a pretty big deal. And this was when we were going to, I think we were still going to Port Mary, and we ended up taking names, not numbers in 10 years to New York, to Mumbai, to Aldborough, and to Oxford. And as long as we went to an extraordinary place where you could meander and walk and be in beautiful physical surroundings with people, it worked. Um, and this particular Hollywood actress. Came along to the sort of pre-breakfast, which we did at the Almeida Theatre in London. And then she said to me, um, I want you to know that I'm not getting on the coach with you. We travelled by coach, by the way, up the M1. I'm not coming with you because I've got a terrible headache. But I didn't want to let you down. So I've come. But sorry, I, I can't actually come for the weekend. And I said, okay, well, I'm terribly sorry you've got a headache. And then I looked at her and I said, you're really nervous, aren't you? And she said, I'm absolutely terrified. I said, come on, we're all absolutely terrified, which tracks back to this, you know, shyness thing. And actually that for me is what, whether you're curating an audience or addressing an audience is completely critical. If you forget that it's about the people, if you project onto them that they're famous and important or more famous mm. and important or that they're hostile or that they're thick or whatever it is that you know might happen, you're going to screw it up. Mm. And the only thing that I think you've picked up on that you're rather fascinated by, which I'm really pleased about, is that what you noticed is that what happens in the room is as important as what happens on the stage.
0: Which kind of leads us to kind of the virtual you, in a way. Virtual you. you. You tweeted, I think it was last week or the week before last, a Financial Times article about a Stanford University study about Zoom fatigue. mm And one of the interesting points that they make in this study is the idea that there is the, the listeners, the, the audience in a online environment, particularly in zoom are actually the speakers as well, because instead of the live environment of an audience which is sat next to each other in front of each other or behind each other with somebody standing on the stage as the focus of attention we're all now looking each other at the eyes in in the eyes as a viewer and a speaker at the same time simultaneously and that's kind of that's for me that's been the biggest shift in performance speaking, presenting has been the, the the idea that the audience is looking at you and the audience all at the same time, simultaneously in the study. They've explained it as, um, it's like being in the lift with, with 10, 15 people. And you're all looking each, staring at each other in the eyes, which is something you would never do in real life. You would look away, you might concentrate on maybe the, the person that you're with, but you would never look at everybody constantly in the eyes. How have you dealt with this this whole new shift of presenting your ideas because as you said you launched your brand new book The Simplicity Principle last year in the middle of a pandemic and you've been on conferences you've been on BBC you've been mm. on how how have you how has that been for you how difficult was it for you to to well, move into I- this space
1: I think, as I said earlier, I think from my experience, the pandemic hit when I had been really actively on the speaker circuit for um, three years solidly. So I had a book called Fully Connected um, published, and I, I, I was still running my business, but I was basically on the road in some shape or form, literally um, – and writing interview, being interviewed and writing articles and visiting conferences and things for three years. And so I was very well practiced by the time it came about. But like everybody, I had to learn how to look into a tiny pinprick on a screen. The Stanford study that you're referencing is very interesting because I think there's a, a different question about some of the positive effects of Zoom on audiences and events, which is there is in fact a weird equality that everyone is in the centre of the room, that nobody's at the back of the room, as you say. That uh, And certainly in this uh, paper I've written for my next book, The Nowhere Office, I've, I've, I've pointed out that some people from um, minority backgrounds say that they feel more included and less excluded on Zoom calls. But leaving that aside, I think you're talking about how do you get a message across? How do you connect? How do you think? The answer is in some ways, an interview like this is easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I mean, it would be lovely. It would be so lovely to be directly in the same room with you. But we, but this works. This is OK. What I think is much, much harder is to give a keynote into a void. Um, and I've, you know, especially when the tech has been overcomplicated. I mean, you don't need a green room, a technological green room. Hello. You just need to ping everybody in and on and get on with it. But it, it it's not so great. Uh, the energy is different. Um, however, I do think it's here to stay. I, I think that scale um, and size is going to be a problem. And that probably what you're going to have is really super duper keynotes. Will like pop stars be flown in at vast expense, you know, to perform at the wedding kind of thing. And I think everybody else will be in small groups um, or on Zoom. Mm. What do you think?
0: I think we're going to have, I think it's going to be a mix. It's going to be blended. I'm calling it blended at the moment. I think hybrid doesn't quite do it justice. I think it's going to be blended. It's going to be something like a small, very niche Exclusive is the wrong word, but well created curated event such as N- names not numbers, but have a virtual component where yes. you can reach a much larger audience. Yes. Where you can have kind of um, you know a spe- one of the big advantages of what we're doing right now is um, it was very very easy to schedule this call with you. It would have been yeah. hell trying to get you physically. Yeah regardless of and that wouldn't have mattered if 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 mm-hmm. um i if me in uh, munich or if we were both in london it would have been a real challenge to organize physical time but this somehow works so we could get i don't know a big keynote speaker to do a call in into a live event i think the 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 real challenge is the, the challenge for the audience is to um, to remain engaged, yeah, because the distraction levels here are just—it's just huge, aren't they? I mean, children in the telephoning in in the kitchen, builders upstairs, the the, the postman will come and ring the door. Well, and- I think
1: the more systemic problem. People's attention is fragmented and distracted. You know, there's that famous paper by Gloria. Um, Alfred, not lawyer Alfred, that's a lawyer, um, Gloria Marks of the University of Irvine in California that points out that, you know, once we come offline, it takes 20 minutes, a third of an hour for our brains to settle and for us to regain our concentration. So I think we were reaching peak distraction before coronavirus. Um, and I think the conference business uh, was, was able to ignore that. But now the travel bans and the reduce budgets and the fear of traveling which isn't going to you know going to come it's going to be germane i agree with you about the blend in fact i referred in in my book fully connected to what i call the blended self this first professional personal blend and mix and whether we call it hybrid or blend it you're right it is here to stay um i've always thought that people crave connection and intimacy and therefore the more expensive, less scaled versions like a names, not numbers um, are more meaningful for people. And certainly in all the things in my professional life, and I'm 56 and I've done quite a lot in my professional life. I was Maya Angelou's book publicist when I was 21 years old. Uh, I was pretty proud of that. And when I was, um, In my late 20s, I coordinated worldwide PR for the largest ever restitution art sale of uh, looted art by the Nazis in Austria for Christie's, um, uh, which earned me a brief face-to-face meeting with Princess Diana before she died. I mean, you know, I'm proud of things that I've done in my career, but actually now I realise... that the the Names Not Numbers conference that I convened over 10 years um, with a community that built to being around about uh, 2,000 people that were affected and involved. I'm really proud of it because it's made a difference to every single one of them. I don't know a single person that doesn't remember them, and I didn't mean it to be so meaningful, but it turned out to be. So having slightly mothballed it, I'm now thinking, Golly! If someone's got an enormous marketing budget and they want to be as laissez-faire as my other sponsors used to be, we might do it again. We I'm sure, <laughs> sure
0: there. I'm sure there. I'd love to do it again. I think everybody who has ever been would would like a shot. And I happen to know that there's a very very beautiful fairy castle just down the road.
1: Oh, just oh, you've the got road. me interested. You've got me interested. I mean I I love what happens when people exchange ideas. So I love being given an opportunity to exchange my ideas. You know, I'm really really interested in um in writing and speaking. I like both. Funnily enough I don't like workshops. I don't know if that's relevant to this I'm discussion. I'm not very
0: I'm not very I'm I I, I think again the the the, the um, virtual workshops can be are better actually because you uh, you you have to approach them slightly differently. You have to structure them differently. You have to you almost have to make them like breakfast television, where you have chunks that keep repeating themselves, and people know exactly where they are, and they can't mm. be longer than an hour and a half. Mm. But I'm I much prefer to 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 standing on a stage and and doing my thing using my words and trying to get an idea across. That's where that's where I feel most comfortable. Um, and the pandemic
1: hasn't killed that off. The pandemic has morphed no. certain mechanisms. And and, so, and I don't want to be one of these naive people that says it's all different. It's never going to be the same again, because that isn't true. But I think it will be somewhat different, because I think people's appetites have been triggered for different things, like the way the podcast has become so ubiquitous that was pre-pandemic. I think a certain kind of Zoom encounter. I've been scheduling some mini salons on Zoom. um, Actually, partly professionally for clients of Editorial Intelligence, and partly just for fun for my own network. They can work really well, actually. Final three. Final three. It's the final three.
0: Julia, what? Let's end with your three top tips. If if somebody is, um, let's have a. I, I, I've just decided how this will now work. So let's. It's Julia's tips for. for tip one is for somebody just starting out and who thinks oh, I really want to be a speaker like Julia Hobson. Tip two is for somebody who's right in the middle of it. I don't know. Maybe they've got I don't know, five or six. 10 keynotes under the belt, and that, and your third and final tip is for an old dog like myself. So, what would be your three tips?
1: Oh, I am going to be really bad at this. This is like the multiple choice question I can't answer. I mean, the first thing I would say is, um, don't overthink it, connect with what you feel and what you think. and. If you're, let's work backwards from the old dog. If you've been doing your shit for a while, you might actually have to work harder to connect with what you think and feel than if you're fresh and new and shiny. So I definitely think the first thing is feel it. Know it and feel it. You could say be authentic, right? I, I would say the second thing is rehearse the hell out of it. You know, my favorite joke, being a good Jewish girl, is is, is, is the, the little old lady who stops the taxi driver in New York and, and says, excuse me, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And he says, lady, you got to practice. You got to practice. You got to practice. And I don't mean practice in a TED way, actually. I don't mean that kind of fake TV news thing, that spiel. Let's, let's differentiate between spiel and shtick. Why don't we? <laughs> I don't mean that. But, but in your head, being really clear about the rhythm and the flow of what it is that you're saying. And then I think the third thing is, and I would say this because it's in my latest book, keep it simple, sweetie. You do have to just no more than six things because it's within the cognitive limit. Probably half of that. What are the three things that in the end you're saying? Um, And then be clever about how you communicate that. What is the image? What is a piece of poetry? What is the thing that's happening out there, wherever there is that you can bring in to the moment that's now that makes people think, oh, this idea has sort of got roots. This idea is rooted in things that I can make sense of.
0: Julia, thank you so very much.
1: That was a total pleasure. Thank you. With Marcus, John, Henry, Brown, Lovely.